Hello everyone, Neil Buttery here. Just a quick message before this episode starts. This first season, which was all about Lent, was made all the way back in 2020 and under a slightly different name, and it was made in partnership with Bina Katani and Sonda Radio, and it is best listened to every week from the Sunday before Lent starts, i.e. the Sunday before Pancake Day. Just so you know, season two of the podcast starts on the 25th of July, which also marks 10 years of my blog, British Food A History. If you're enjoying the podcasts, and hopefully the blogs too, please consider going to britishfoodhistory.com and click on the tab Support the Blog and Podcast, where you can buy me a virtual coffee or pint, or start a subscription for just £3 a month and get access to my Easter eggs, i.e. loads of hidden extras, deleted scenes, full interviews, ad-free versions of the podcast, all sorts plus extra posts and recipes on the main blog that are otherwise hidden. All of the money will go towards making more content for you. Okay, enough of all this. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy the podcast. Hello there. Welcome to episode number one of my new podcast, British Food, A History, Lent. My name is Dr Neil Buttery. I'm a chef, food historian and scientist. Evolutionary biology is my thing. I've been writing about the history of British food on my blog, British Food, A History, and I've been cooking up old recipes for over a decade now. And the great thing is, I get to experiment with all of the things that interest me. Go to www.britishfoodhistory.com to see what I mean. There's loads of stuff in there about Lent and Easter already, as well as episode notes and links to stuff we talk about. Each Sunday throughout Lent, I'll be looking at the special days and customs that crop up over the 40-day fast that spans seven calendar weeks, and I'll be assessing it from every single angle. The social history, the food, the anthropology, and the science. Of course, there's a healthy sprinkling of religion in there too, but this is not a podcast about religion. It's a podcast that tells us about why we mark Lent, how we do it, and how this all fits into our evolutionary journey as humans. I'll be charting the special celebration days and customs throughout this great fast. Just how did communities manage to get through it? How did they keep theirs and their comrades' spirits up? It must have been a grim and grueling part of the year in miserable Britain. No animal meat or animal products were permitted, and there was little or no fresh produce, given the bleak time of year it usually falls. As we move across time toward the modern day, we'll see how the strict rules of Lent have changed and slackened as our lives become less and less gruelling. It's a good thing, of course, but it means we've lost many of our customs, much of our heritage, and frankly, the point. I'll be interviewing all types of people, from bishops to evolutionary biologists, chocolatiers to farmers as well as the great British public, of course. In this week's episode, we're going to look at Collop Monday, bet you've never heard of that, and Pancake Day, or to give its proper name, Shrove Tuesday. I'll be cooking some pancakes with some good friends of mine, and looking at the very first day of the big fast, Ash Wednesday. Before we do any of that, however, we need to know just exactly what Lent is and what it's for. I was very lucky to spend a bit of time with the very busy and very reverend David Walker, Bishop of Manchester, to talk about what Lent is, just so we're all up to speed. As somebody who's not a Christian, Lent and Easter seem a little, or might seem a little odd. They're not celebrated as much, at least from the average person's point of view, anywhere near as much as Advent and Christmas. Mm -hmm. I also find it's a little bit obscure. It moves around the calendar in a strange way unlike Christmas that's always got a fixed date. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't sing Easter carols, and there isn't a fight for an Easter number one. 
in, <laughs> in the charts. Um, but Easter's the most significant part of the Christian calendar, although lay people like me might not actually know it. So I just thought you might be able to let us know why, why we do Lent and why we have Easter. Yeah, well, Easter is the most important festival um, in the Christian year because Easter is when we remember the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross on Good Friday. And then on Easter morning, we believe that God raised him from the dead. And that's a sign that, uh, that he has power even over death itself. And that's our hope, our promise of eternal life with God. And so Easter is that most important festival of the entire Christian year. It's, it's perhaps one we keep a little bit more to ourselves than, than Christmas, which we share with the, the whole of the nation and the whole of the world. But it's the most important one, and that's why it has quite a long period of preparation leading up to it, which we call Lent. Right, OK. So is that, is that why Christmas seems to be more showy? Because it's more... You know, it's about the birth of Jesus. It's, it's rather more rejoiceful. You can see why people have got more kind of carry into it. Yeah. Again, I mean, Easter, there's, there's resurrection and rebirth mm-hmm. there, so it mm-hmm. is hopeful. But again, if you just look askance at it, it seems quite depressing. Yeah, I mean, Christmas is all good news. What's not to like about a little baby? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> we tend not to focus on the fact that the, uh, you know, the manger would have been pretty cold and, uh, and uh, dismal in the middle of the winter. But, uh, yeah, but on the fact that here's a baby born into the world and that every, every family knows what it's like to have a baby born mm-hmm. into them and can see the rejoicing in that. Uh, for Easter, yes, the, the end of the story is great good news, but, uh, but it travels a pretty dark route to get there. We're talking about the, the brutal execution in the most painful way that the sure. Roman uh, army could imagine yeah. uh, of a religious leader. Lent and Easter are a little bit odd in that they move around the calendar well, it's because they're based not on the solar calendar, which is the one that gives us the, you know, the normal months, January, February, mm-hmm. March, and so on, the dates within those months. They're based on the lunar calendar. The actual death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're celebrating at Easter, mm-hmm. that occurred at the Passover season in the Jewish calendar, and Passover is based on the first moon after the spring equinox. Ah, okay. And so it's always going to be after the spring equinox, but it can vary by as much as five or six weeks, depending on exactly when that moon comes and what day of the week it is, because mm. we do always have Easter on a Sunday. Easter morning is always a Sunday. Good Friday is, unsurprisingly, always a Friday. Mm-hmm. Of course, that makes sense, I suppose, because you know, in the days before, people had clocks. A, mon- uh, a moon monthly cycle is a bit more tangible. You can kind of keep an eye on that, so everyone can kind of follow that. When, you, when there's no calendars or clocks or anything, uh, a lunar yeah. calendar must be quite tricky to yeah. get your head around. Yeah. So it, it, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Particularly when you're living in parts of the world that are not quite as perpetually cloudy as Manchester sometimes <laughs> seems <laughs> well, to be. So getting on to Lent then, so that's mm. the, that happens you know, on, the, on the follow-up to Easter. What, what is Lent and, and why do we do that? I think there's two aspects, as I see it, to the origins of Lent. One is to have a period of build-up to to Easter. In the very earliest Christian church, uh, Easter was the time when new Christians were baptised. They were people who uh, had come into the Christian faith. They and their families would would come along and be admitted to baptism and then to receive Holy Communion at Easter Day for the first time. So they were symbolizing being joined with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection, being called to live a new life. So that's why it was important to have Mm -hmm. some period leading up to Easter, where those who were preparing for baptism in particular would be going through a period of special prayers and special abstinence or fasting. 
But then it began to be expanded as the whole church, that everybody joined I with see. those yeah. uh, new Christians mm-hmm. in that time of preparation. That's one of the origins. Of course, the other bit of it is we link it to the 40 days and 40 nights that Jesus spent in the wilderness exactly, at the yeah, very beginning yeah. of his mm-hmm. uh, ministry, at his public ministry. He'd been, he himself had been baptised by John the Baptist and mm-hmm. then disappears off into the desert to kind of really think and pray about what his calling is. Uh, and he spends that time gaining an understanding of what his mission is. And we believe that he prayed a lot, that he fasted a lot. It was a time of abstinence for him. And so those two at some point quite early in the church's Mm -hmm. journey get linked together. So we're both uh, preparing for Easter, but we're also doing uh, something like what Jesus did three years earlier at the Mm -hmm. very beginning of Mm -hmm. his public ministry. Why did Jesus choose to abstain for all that time? Well, he went out into the desert to find, to find solitude, to find peace and quiet, to find a place where he wouldn't be interrupted. Uh, he, we've all he, been there. We've all been there. <laughs> uh, well, I've found, uh, too, sometimes when I really need to think something through, actually the process of fasting can be an important part of it. It, cl- it clarifies the mind. It cleanses the body in some ways and uh, makes it possible to focus more deeply on the thing that you're wanting to, to pay attention to. So that pattern of fasting which christians continue to use today uh, mm-hmm. is an important part of uh, of how we get closer to god and really think through and pray through the issues that are most important to us we don't often manage it for a full 40 days no but uh, but even for 24 hours even to miss a couple of meals can mm-hmm. actually focus the mind is there some kind of intrinsic benefit to fasting that somebody like like myself who's not uh, religious would get benefit from do you think is this just something inherent about that act that kind of transcends religion? That fasting itself I, is a benefit. I think it is, and yeah. that's probably why pretty well every religious tradition has it at some yes, part indeed. in its yeah. in its yeah. life. There's a deep, uh, common, shared human understanding there that this mm-hmm. process of from time to time abstaining from things, particularly abstaining from food or abstaining from food and drink, actually does clarify the mind it, it focuses the thoughts and the heart on the things that we really want to be looking at and I think for anybody particularly if you've got some big decision you're coming to in your life some major possible choice of direction you have to take mm-hmm. to spend some of that time in fasting not overdoing it we don't want anybody to make themselves ill but yeah, just fasting yeah. uh, can be quite an important part of, of getting that clear vision for the way ahead mm-hmm. and it must be quite difficult to fast do people still do fasts for lent i know that may be a silly question but uh, you don't, people, obviously people don't talk about it generally and it might be that they're doing it but just it's a personal thing so they're not talking about it and telling me it's not something done very publicly but mm. uh, but occasionally if i'm if i'm fasting during lent i might uh, invite people to fast with me on a particular day yeah. or i might offer to pray for people if they will tell me what day in which they're they're, they're fasting they'll offer to keep them particularly by name in my prayers on that on that particular day, day to support them in what they're doing. So fasting is still very much part of the Christian tradition. And, you know, I think possibly it's become perhaps more important because now we live in a, a city and a culture where there are other religions and we see them fasting. It kind mm-hmm. of makes us think, well, why? Well, that's part of our tradition. Why don't we pay more attention to it and I'm, sure. i must admit you know I, i've been strengthened in my own practice of fasting by uh, watching my muslim friends during ramadan uh, it matters enough for them to do that well maybe it ought to matter to me too
Because it used to be, going back a few hundred years ago, Lent being at the end of essentially a hunger gap. So there's very little food going around as it was. So I, I guess everyone was fasting to some degree, whether they liked, they liked it or not. But um, today, the, there are no hunger gaps. We've got food around us all year round. No one notices. You can get strawberries in January if you want them. I was wondering whether that has good things or bad things associated with Lent, because I imagine it's much harder to do Lent when there's a load of food being tempting. At the same time, it might be more, you might get more out of it because it is more temptation. So if you can avoid eating or cutting out the thing you've decided to cut out, that actually it's, it requires more effort. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about you know, Lent in the modern day compared to, say, 100, 200 years ago. Yeah, I mean, things are different. As you say, it's, uh, it, it works quite nicely in the Northern Hemisphere that the, uh, that the period when when historically villagers would be running out of their uh, their supplies, the stuff from the previous harvest that uh, you know, they'd planted seeds, but nothing nothing had grown yet. That would come at that early spring time before there was there was much much fresh produce to to eat, uh, and so to fast at that time of year probably did help make the make the food last a little bit little bit longer through mm-hmm. the through the year. And particularly the fast from meat uh, is often important part of. Uh, of, of Lent because at that point the, the new lambs and the new calves would be being born in the spring and you would want to let them grow to fullness mm-hmm. before you actually started uh, using them on the, on the dinner table. So, so having a fast from meat at that time of year is, is perhaps particularly valuable. So as I've been researching this, I found it kind of quite amusing. It, Lent also, in the past, maybe not today, it really tells us a lot about class and how mm. different classes approached it. I was reading that uh, Henry VIII decided that he was sick of having just fish during Lent, so he decided eggs were fish and therefore chickens because they laid the eggs. (laughs) So there's been a certain amount of pressure to relax Lent whilst at the same time, I I guess, convincing yourself that you've like you've done it <laughs> well there's a, there's a lovely story about that oh, yeah. in that when the uh, christian faith first uh, made its way to, to latin america mm-hmm. uh, it made its way to places that were actually quite some distance away from uh, any supplies of fish and so the the priests in in latin america mm-hmm. managed to persuade the pope that a particular i think large rodent called a capybara oh, yes. was actually to be seen as a fish rather than as an animal <laughs> so that it could be consumed right. during Lent. Because otherwise, uh, if you don't have uh, fish and you don't have meat, you have to think quite hard about where you're going to get your protein from. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm a pescatarian. I don't eat meat, but I do eat fish precisely because otherwise, given the sort of places I travel, the kind of meals I eat, I would, I would get an awful lot of cholesterol and not very much protein. So yeah. you do have to think about how you're going to balance mm-hmm. your diet, whether you're fasting or not. So I, I love that story of this kind of large... Uh, sort of bigger than a guinea pig sort of creature that yeah, became yeah, an honorary them, fish. Yeah. They hang about in pools and things, don't yeah. they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They, yeah they, they stay close to water, but you'd be really struggling to actually classify them as fish mm. rather think, than animals. I think there was an argument that the beaver was counted as a fish as well in Britain when we still had them because the, fi- the tail looks like a fish. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fish. And porpoises were fish as well, of course. Indeed. Lent is punctuated by lots of events, uh, I guess the first event is just precedes it, and that's Shrove Tuesday, Pancake mm-hmm. Day, of course, where people are trying to use up, I guess, all the things that they were not allowed that's to right, have during yes, the, for yes. the rest of the time. 
Yes, yes. Shrove Tuesday was a, an opportunity for people to uh, to eat up particularly animal fats, which mm-hmm. of course, uh, as animal products, wouldn't have been allowed during during Lent. So you use all of that, and you make use up your eggs, and you make a pancake, and it's uh, quite a rich food. And you have a party, and of course, in some parts of the world, you get enormous kind of festivals on mm-hmm. Shrove, Shrove Tuesday and, yes. and, and great parades and the mm-hmm. and the like. But that's that's where it originates from. You you couldn't let that food go to waste so yeah. what you had to do was to eat it up and enjoy it uh, and that, that also makes then quite a stark beginning to lent the sudden move uh, on ash wednesday from that kind of celebration and feasting to that time of fasting it probably makes a, a sharper beginning that you might otherwise get yeah there are lots of days special days around that uh, shrove tuesday the day before it's call-up monday which people seem to have forgotten about when you have your slices of meat Collops just a slice of something. Mothering Sunday, Passion Tide, Carling Sunday, Fig Sunday, various events like Clipping the Church. I don't know if you've heard of that one. There's loads and loads of things going on. Um, I'm assuming a lot of that is... Well, apparently you can keep count of how many days you've gone. Helps. But I'm assuming there's a certain amount of cajoling and helping, especially from the church, of helping people to get through it. Because it's it's a very dark time of the year, especially in, in the UK... So it can get quite miserable, I imagine, just because there's not much food, it's dark, it's probably raining like it is today. And yet there is a glimmer of hope when Easter comes for everybody, because spring's coming too. I was just wondering if you had anything to add to that, really. Do do you have any particular times that you really enjoy during Lent, any particular services or events? Well, I... I think one of the things the church realised very early on is that perpetual fasting for a long period is, is hard going. And so it, it, it's always been the case that there have been kind of times or, or, or days of refreshment mm-hmm. during, uh, during that sort of a period. And so Mothering Sunday is a, is a particular one. On the fourth Sunday of Lent, it's sort of about halfway through. Uh, and it's a time when the fasting rules are particularly relaxed. Mm-hmm. There was always a certain bit of leeway around Sundays. Uh, every Sunday in the Christian calendar is, is treated as, as kind of minor feast day. Sure. It's a day when people uh, are not expected to fast quite as rigorously as they as they would at other times. Um, but yeah, Mothering Sunday is a particular occasion on which uh, it's possible to relax the fast, and that in itself can uh, it, it both relieves some of the pressure. But it also kind of reminds people, again, it punctuates in the same way that move from Shrove Tuesday to Ash Wednesday at the mm-hmm. beginning of Lent does. It kind of punctuates and, uh, and reminds people that, uh, that they are fasting because actually on this one day, they're not fasting. A lot of people don't actually fast per se, but they do like to cut something out. One of my friends cut out social media a couple of years ago. They didn't succeed. <laughs> but um, at least they tried. Um, are you finding a lot of people are using Lent just really as a, as a prompt for them to try and do something to essentially improve themselves? Because it's considered character-building, at least, isn't it, doing something like that? It is, yeah. And it's a, it is a chance to, to re-evaluate our lives as a whole and perhaps to say, well, maybe i become over-dependent on alcohol or chocolate or Twitter or whatever it may be, <laughs> and actually I'm going to have a go for a particular period of time at uh, reducing or abstaining entirely from that that particular thing. I mean, I have a rule during Lent that I don't look at uh, at social media before a certain amount of time in the morning. Mm -hmm. I also don't uh, drink alcohol uh, in the house, although if somebody offers me a drink if I'm at a party, then then for social reasons I'll uh, I'll accept it. Uh, 
So it's, it's good to have those kinds of things and, and to know that you've got other people doing something similar at the same time. I mean, any form of, uh, of abstinence, any form of trying to regain control uh, over your life in that way, it can, can, can be hard work and it can really make a difference to know that you're not the only person doing it. And so to know that at this particular season of the year, lots of people for all sorts of different reasons are uh, either giving up particular things or maybe taking something up. Quite a tradition in recent times is to take something up for Lent. So uh, you know, I'm producing a, a, a book. It's just been published with mm-hmm. a short selection of daily readings for Lent. And people will take that and they'll do those readings each day as a particular discipline themselves to try to have a moment of reflection of peace of thinking about themselves Mm -hmm. and their lives and what they believe perhaps at the start or perhaps at the end or perhaps in the middle of each day so people take things up for Lent as well as give things up for Lent things that they think will benefit them and make them perhaps a better person at the end of it yeah I think taking back control what you just said a minute ago that kind of rang a bell I think that is the kind of standout thing for me there because um, we feel like we're so out of control of our lives sometimes, don't we? And I guess yeah. that's just saying, yeah. you know, taking the marathons, I'm going to get in control and hopefully that will carry on once Lent is finished in, in other ways. Well, exactly. And certainly, I mean, I believe that I've, I've got not just my, in my own strength, but I've got the strength of God uh, supporting me in doing that. But there are some you know, significant changes that have uh, been made to my life over the years where I've actually started, I will try this for Lent. Mm-hmm. And having tried it for Lent, I found actually I so much benefit from that or I so much appreciate that that it's now going to be the way I live my life yeah. all year round. Yes, yes. And, uh, and yeah, and Lent, Lent gives you that kind of spur, that, that moment. Well, I only have to do it for 40 days. I'm not promising at the beginning that I'm never going to whatever it is again yeah it's just a finite amount of yeah. time it seems more achievable doesn't it, it is. Was just, I'm, I'm never going to do this again forever yeah. it can yeah. be a bit daunting and you can probably trip at the first hurdle quite quickly yeah if we set our aspirations <laughs> too high yes. uh, we set ourselves up to fail if we set them at something that's challenging but but achievable then then sometimes at the end of that we think well actually that was so good i want to carry on with it well thank you very much for speaking to us today about lent and easter we're all clued up now it's my <laughs> pleasure thank you very much That was the Very Reverend David Walker, Bishop of Manchester, giving us a thoroughly good overview of the season of Lent. I'm going to go into a bit more detail about the individual days of the feast in a minute. But if you're curious about what a capybara looks like and tastes like, I've put a link up to that in an article on the blog. So we are starting off our first week of the podcast with some feasting as we ride out the final days of a period of time on the old Christian calendar called Shrovetide. We only use the word Shrove in the context of Shrove Tuesday nowadays, so what does it mean? Shrove Tuesday is also known as Pancake Day, of course. But who's heard of Shrove Monday, also known as Collet Monday? You've just heard me and the bishop chatting about it. As you also heard from the bishop, Shrovetide is a time of year when people will prepare themselves both physically and mentally for the Great Lenten Fast. The word Shrove is the past tense of the verb Shrive, the action of seeking absolution from sin. The days just prior were a time of much merriment and eating, if the resources were there, before the swiftly approaching stint of reflection and abstinence. There are some things I'm glad to say we don't do anymore. Back in Tudor times, you could go out and thresh the cock, a game where you'd tie up a chicken and take turns throwing rocks at it. The person who killed the bird got to keep it as a prize, and you'd eat it for dinner before Lent began. Here's a little Tudor ditty to illustrate my point. At shroff tied to shroving, go thresh the fat hen. If blindfold can kill her, then give it my men. Ah, the good old days. 
Shrovetide begins on the catchily named Saptagesima Sunday, the ninth Sunday before Easter, and it ends the day before Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent, and it lasts a total of 17 days. If you go right back to the very early Christians, Shrovetide was not a time of fun and carnival, but a time of confession and penance in order to achieve absolution for sins before Lent began. Indeed, that's the meaning of the word shrove, the action of absolving sin. We only seem to notice the tail end of Shrovetide, and tomorrow is the first day of our journey, Collop Monday, the day in which all the meat left hanging the ladders would be eaten. A collop is a slice of meat, and at this time of year, when there was little fresh produce around, this usually meant a slice of the last of the salt pork. Rarely was there any fresh meat available at this time, but if there was, it would be cured, ready to eat after Lent. But any trimmings and offal would be included in the Collop Monday feast. It was traditional to eat thickly sliced collops of bacon with fried eggs, the fat rendered from the meat being frugally kept aside, ready to fry the next day on Shrove Tuesday. Sometimes a housewife made a little pancake batter ahead of time, if it could be spared, so that the meat could be eaten together with it. This, I strongly suspect, is the origin of the classic British dish, Toad in the Hole, where pieces of meat, not originally sausages, were fried, covered in pancake batter and baked. The word collop, by the way, is still in use today in the local chippies of northern England, where we can buy slices of potato that have been dipped in butter and deep fried. These potato scallops are delicious and were a mainstay of my own school time lunches up north in Leeds. Collop Monday had different names around the country. Up in the northern counties, it was called Peasum Monday, a day where thick pea soups were eaten, again often with a bacon or ham bone. A dish metamorphosing, eventually, into peas pudding. In the southern counties, it was called Merry Monday, a great day for merrymaking associated with carnivals. At Eton, the scholars would compose humorous verses to read out on Collop Monday as a way of saying farewell to frivolity, rich food and wine until the end of Lent. But what has become of Collop Monday? I can't find a single place or person in the United Kingdom that still celebrates it. So perhaps, on your way home from work tomorrow night, you should give the old day a nod by purchasing the ingredients for a nice toad in the hole. Shrove Tuesday, as everyone knows, is pancake day. Traditionally, this was the day, the final chance, to eat up the rest of the fat, eggs, milk and everything else that was forbidden during Lent. Shrove Tuesday is also known as Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday on the continent, and it's part of their carnival celebrations. Carnival is also about preparing for Lent, and literally means farewell to meat. In the UK, Shrove Tuesday went under different names like Gutted Tuesday, Bannock Night, Fast as Ian, Donut Day, my personal favourite, and Shuttlecock Day. We love to indulge on pancakes on Shrove Tuesday to mark the tradition, but I cannot help but think that it feels a little bit like cheating to indulge on the day without the abstinence over the next 40. At best nowadays, we might just give up one vice. Also, other traditions on Shrove Tuesday have gone by the wayside, and the diversity of pancakes themselves has dropped immensely. Back in the day, pancakes differed greatly depending on your status. Here are a couple of 18th century examples. Harvest pancakes for the poor. Pour one pottle wheat flour, around two and a half pounds, two quarts of new milk or mild ale, four eggs, powdered ginger to taste, and lard for frying. Pancakes for the rich. For three ounces of flour, half pint of cream, quarter pound melted butter, one large egg, two tablespoons of brown sherry, one teaspoon of rose or orange flower water and half a grated nutmeg. 
the late great food writer Jane Grigson laments of the latter. It is sad that this kind of recipe should survive as a commonplace in France, but not in England. We've let it vanish from our tables and cling masochistically to the poor man's recipe. Well, I recruited some taste testers in the form of my friends Kate and Pete. I've known them for many years, and they are very used to me shoving historical foods under their noses. I turned up at their house, having pre-made the aforementioned pancake batters. So we are ladling out the first one. This is Harvest Pancakes for the Poor. All thin. This is the first time I've used this pan, so it'll be a disaster. The first pancake is always a disaster. It's like one for the pancake gods or something. That looks like enough. If you've got a hungry five-year-old... You just cover it in something and give it to them. That's how we deal with it. I'm not used to electric hobs. Just leave that for a little second. When it stops being shiny, it's time to turn over. What did you have in your pancakes as a child, Peter? Lemon and sugar. Lemon and sugar. Real lemon or Jif lemon? Jif. Correct answer. <laughs> Gosh, man! What was the advert? <laughs> Don't forget the pancakes on Jif Lemon Day. I believe the advert went. Yeah, Is that right? it was. Yeah. So my mum had butter. No, she didn't. She had sugar and lemon. We had margarine and sugar. That's what we were given. <laughs> but but Not even proper butter. But my Stop. best friend growing up was half Canadian, so oh. I got introduced very early to the maple syrup idea. Oh really? Very early, yeah. Mm. At the Little Chef. Oh. Which was also the first place that I discovered that pancakes did not have to be thin, and could have a very strange texture. But I am a big fan of Little Chef pancakes, or was a big fan of Little Chef pancakes. I like Little Chef full stop. Well, yeah. Yeah. Should we take a moment to mourn the passing of Little Chef in this highbrow eating podcast? Britain has got a wonderful tradition and uh, very varied history of pancakes they're not just um, crepes there's some amazing ones particularly in Wales it's got like sour cream in them and, and they're like an American pancake they're nice and thick and fluffy like a pre- in hinnies drop know. scones like a Welsh thing. like the Welsh cake kind. Welsh cakes yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah but we've just seemed to have uh, just well good for at least for a good couple of decades just went for the Great. I think I remember that as well. My mum wouldn't even put all milk in. It was half milk, half water. But we were from Yorkshire. So what do you expect? Is that as well, though, because it's a Tuesday night in February? Maybe. And you've got to make your pancakes. You know, it's tea time. It, it's not the most efficient meal to make, is it? Especially if you've got a largish family. No, it's not. We're having, for, for context, people, we're having to pile them up on a plate so we can all sit down at the same time. Instead so we of, are going to have what was the routine instead of you know standing there like Oliver Twist waiting for your pancake exactly which you'd then inhaled by the time the next person got theirs and you were bored indeed you were there trying to scoop out the sugar yeah now I'm just looking at pancake too here and mm-hmm. in spite of its um inherent laciness yes it is better than pancake one why is pancake one always pancake atrocious one is always atrocious oh. there's, there's either not enough fat or too much fat it's not quite hot enough or it's too hot the penance to the pancake costs I, I seem to remember the first one just always going in the bin because it was just a yeah. disaster it was just a clump in the middle do you remember yvette fielding on blue peter <gasps> and the, 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 the biggest pancake fail of all time that was amazing i wonder if that's on youtube i remember my mum being like she could barely watch because she'd like 
barely identified if that was like a child of Blackpool. And my mum was like really she invested was. in her career on Blue Peter and she almost couldn't handle it. She when went that hysterical people, didn't yeah. she? Because she carried on with the piece. Yeah. Oh, I remember that. There were almost tears in our house. Do you ever do a pancake race at school? I don't think I've ever done a pancake race. I don't think I got as far as the pancake race. I famously lost a walking race to a boy with one leg. <laughs> that Sorry, was that's never offered. <laughs> okay, paupers. Our poor pancakes are ready. Let's give them a go. Right, so what's going on your pancake? I'm going to go um, Pudsy Leeds circa 1982 butter sugar. Oh! Oh, I'm gonna. Have to, I'm gonna go lemon sugar. I think lemon sugar. I'm gonna balance things out by going um, tonight's sponsor, Lyle's Golden Syrup. <laughs> Other syrups well. are available. Yeah, there's about two pints of syrup there. Is that enough for you? <laughs> okay, let's get some reactions. Are they taking us back to our childhoods? Classic. Yeah. Classic. Absolutely. Good. Can you taste the ginger in it? No. I can't. Give me a minute. But I've drowned mine in golden syrup, Good. so um, <laughs> if I can taste anything other than golden syrup, I'll tell you. Yes, I can taste the ginger. Yeah. And just, just, just at right at the end there. I'm quite surprised that they put ginger in because um, the working classes traditionally have always been a little bit afraid of flavour. I would say in Britain. <laughs> okay, so that was our control group. Everything went well. Nothing controversial. However, let's see what they thought of the pancakes for the rich. It just looked rich. I never thought batter could look posh, but it sort it's of does. Shiny. It does, yeah. It was also called a choir of paper because uh, it's meant to look like a thin, frilly piece of parchment. It's like a big brandy snap. Oh, yeah, over-promising there, I think. Well, I didn't need any fat in that pan because of all that butter. Listeners, it does indeed look like a brandy snap. Yeah. That Less bronzed. Like, that doesn't look like it's got much substance to it, though, does it? It looks airy. It does look airy. I've got to try and turn that over. I think, that. I think we might be doing an event fielding. Right. I do find pancakes quite stressful to make. They're hard to coordinate. Oh, yes. I thought that was going to be a disaster. Because I'm a true professional. I'd actually practiced this before we came. And it was a complete disaster. This time it's worked. You obviously my good luck. I would say this is going well. And it is starting to smell like a transport cafe. Uh, uh, Yeah, that is definitely a um, point worth making that these pancakes, these Posh pancakes smell different to the um, poor pancakes in a transport cafe style. Yes. I can smell the orange. I can smell the orange. I can smell the grease. More getting the grease. (laughs) Delicious grease. (laughs) Well, hey, I mean, that's the point. I mean, these pancakes are here to use up all the the fat. It's fat Tuesday. There's a lot of fat in it. You're about to abstain for. Fat Tuesday. The rest of Europe having a massive party. (laughs) We're sitting in drinking cups of tea (laughs) and eating pancakes. Why is there a separate pancake for the rich? Because it seems Mm. to me like Shrove Tuesday has never really been... I can see that maybe Christmas dinner or whatever is a bit about showing off. Sure. 
But Shrove Tuesday is sort of about using up and getting ready to go into like fasting yeah. mode. So was it about showing off or is it just you'd have fancier things to use up? Well, both, really. Um, they had a lot of very rich stuff to give up mm-hmm. and to use up. But at the same time, it was good to be seen to be using up some pretty posh stuff. A little bit of like, oh, we can't get rid of this cream. <clears throat> and what would Not happen so much was, of it. These, you know, obviously, you know, ladies of, you know, who were running a house would be doing this. And they'd be having other people come round for their pancakes. So they wanted to Ooh. make sure that other people knew they were giving up a lot of pretty yeah. nice stuff, like orange flower water and yeah. fresh nutmegs and cherry. Which and that they kind of probably thing. bought in specially to use it, up. Probably did, yeah. Not yeah. wanting to cast I should imagine. I should imagine it was quite a, a cynical thing, really. It's like pushing, putting a posher brand of something in your rubbish to make people think that's what you use all the time. I'm also wondering, mm. as we're watching these, mm-hmm. like, are we actually going to need toppings on these ones? I don't think I'll be putting butter on my... I don't think, no. These are not my recipes. I've got these recipes from the good lady, Jane Grigson, my food heroine. Uh, she has worked out these recipes. And um, she is very much annoyed that we've adopted the pancakes for the poor and we don't have pancakes for the rich anymore. It's some kind of masochistic act. That she we is annoyed. I would, has, I would suggest that her arteries may be thankful. Oh, no! Oh, oh that's it. Sorry, it's torn. The pancake is... The palette knife yeah. is let us down... Yvette, Nothing's fine. The spirit of Yvette's in the room. Ah, balls. Derek Akura is hovering over your shoulder. Oh, my God. He's got it over. We're all right. Well, I say saved it. It's quite frilly. It'd make a very poor frisbee. It's meant to be frilly. Frilly is what we're going for. Well, this is a very frilly one. It looks like a Scandinavian yeah. archipelago. It's like a doily. <laughs> I could, ne- could use them as neck curtains. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know about you when you're at family do's and my auntie used to make a sherry trifle. It was 90% oh, yeah. sherry. Yeah. It was just vile. And for years I thought alcohol in food was a bad thing. Until I realised it's actually a seasoning. I mean, this whole mixture's only got a couple of tablespoons in. So it's not meant to blow your head off. Your entire take on this sherry is very much Nana Royal having a tiny sherry at Christmas. Indeed. You're Indeed. in denial about the presence of the alcohol. Here. I'm not a sherry fan and I'm not a brandy fan, particularly not a brandy fan, or whiskey, anything like that. But just used in small amounts, it can make something very delicious. Okie dokie. A choir of paper, pancakes for the rich. I will give myself a four out of ten for presentation. They're certainly a lot less papery looking now they're on the plate. Well, they started off well. So they work the opposite way to regular pancakes. Regular pancakes, the first two or three disasters. These ones, first one's perfect. Mm. And then it just got worse and worse. I think we should, can we just get the sound of the pancakes? That's... Okay, I faffed about a little bit at this point because they were very tricky to dish out. I just kept messing up. Pete was the first to dig in. As a standalone snack, it's pretty good. It's got that kind of top of the mouth tingle. 
Oh, is that the sherry? Is that the nutmeg? Is that the orange flower water? Can you taste all those things? I'm I'm too plebby to kind of notice these things. <laughs> Let me see it's if the, I, it's the orange. It's the orange. Do I want to put Do I want to put water. sugar on it? I'm I'm here. I feel like I should put something on it. I feel like mm. I'm not having a pancake. I feel like sugar might be good because there's no sugar in it. In the actual, they are quite but. perfumey. Ooh, yeah. I'm so I'm greasy. So greasy. I'm going to do a lemon and sugar one. It's funny, you know, there's no... I mean, I've cooked a lot of historical things. There's never any bad ingredients. I've done brains, I've done testicles, I've done all sorts. They're always delicious. What seems to be bad is how those ingredients are used. That's what really seems to go in and out. I'm just, you know... It's different. Mm. It tastes like a pancake that's showing off. (laughs) Well, it's what it is. It's not pancake textured, is it? No. I hate this word. It's one of my least favourite words, but I'm going to say it. Mouthfeel. Give me the creams. But how's the mouthfeel? <laughs> how's the mouthfeel for you, Kate? <laughs> I'm just doing a full body cringe. Excuse me. Sorry. I won't say mouthfeel anymore. Claggy, I feel. This is the mouthfeel. Claggy, claggy good, and like also... the clack of a cake. Like a nice clacky cake or bad clacky. Yeah, like quite a dense cake. More like deep fried donuts type that kind mm, of area of snack. Deep fried donuts. But none of that goes with the floral thing. I love the floral thing. It's not yeah, but those two things just don't go together. There's like a cognitive dissonance happening. Mm, get you. Well, um I, I would put orange flower water in everything if I could. I really like it. There's so much butter in there though, isn't there? Yes. I kind of want more though. That's how it gets. Let's you. dive in. Yeah, I'm gonna have some more. I confess I prefer the pancakes for the poor myself. I don't know what that says about me. If you want to try the pancakes for the rich or for the poor, the recipes can be found on the website. Richer households would prepare both batters, the masochistic mixture being fried up and given out to local poor children who had gone out shriving for griddle cakes, and the posh ones for all the household's posh friends. As housewives' batter rested in their bowls, local towns played sports, Shuttlefeather in Leicestershire, Old Rules Football in Cumberland, as well as other pursuits such as skipping and hurling. But best known is the Pancake Day race itself. The race that's believed to be the longest running occurs in Olney, Buckinghamshire, which started in 1445. It only ever lapsed, understandably, during World War II. The traditional rules of the race were for local ladies to dash with their pan and pancake from the village square to the parish church, a distance of around 120 metres. Pancakes must be successfully tossed at least three times. If you fail in your tossing and drop the pancake, you must complete a successful toss before carrying on. The winner not only received a new prayer book, but also a kiss from the Verger. I'm pleased to say that the race is still held annually, though fewer kisses doled out by the Verger these days, I would imagine. However, the time does come for the feasting to stop and the frivolities to end. This was indicated by the ringing of the shriving bell at the local church, calling all folk to the parish to be shriven and have their sins absolved before Lent begins tomorrow. Okay, a big history bit coming up, so brace yourselves. Over the last couple of days, we have eaten up all of our meat, eggs and dairy in our pantries and larders. Last night, we visited church and got well and truly shriven, all in preparation for today, Ash Wednesday, the first day of Lent. 
For churchgoers, Ash Wednesday is a chance for people to reflect upon their sins and repent. It has in the past been fairly brutal. For example, the Episcopal Church in 19th century America called today a day of fasting and humiliation where we publicly confess our sins. It's a wake-up call to remember that we came from dust and that we returned to dust. A sobering thought, whatever your religious inclination. Ash Wednesday became part of the official Christian itinerary in the 1090s, where a priest would strew ash on the floor of the church as he lectured. Over time, this was reduced to a sprinkle of ash over the head, reminding us that we're dust, eventually being refined to a daubed cross symbol on the forehead, a ritual that still goes on in Roman Catholic churches around the globe today. It was lost to the Protestant world during the Reformation when Thomas Cranmer, Henry VIII's Archbishop of Canterbury, banned it on the grounds it was a superstitious ceremony. Now, taking stock of your life can be a cathartic endeavour, but a day of humiliation is taking the piety a little too far. The church were working to ensure the community as a whole would be behaving as expected during Lent. To get the whole community through its lean part of the year, everyone had to cooperate. And the church, as focus of the community, had to make sure the group hit the ground running with everyone, or enough at least, abstaining together. If too many folk were greedy, it could spell disaster. Shrovetide and now Ash Wednesday are just one of the many festivals, celebrations and special days, religious or otherwise, that were there to keep the community working together, each individual holding back for the greater good at a cost to themselves. One successful way to reinforce this in religious times is simply to remind everyone that they have sinned, and to convince them now is the time to wipe the slate clean. Not forgetting to tell them, of course, that they've been watched throughout, not just by God, but by the beady eyes of their peers. Knowing that there are eyes everywhere observing just how goodly you are behaving was a deterrent from selfishness. And in medieval times, this was very important because everyone was really pulling together, pooling resources and eating together as a community. And we'll chat more about this later in the series. So there we have it. After Ash Wednesday, there's nothing much else going on for the rest of the week, apart from lots of fasting. So next week, we'll be looking at the history and the rules of Lent and what that meant for us in the kitchen. They attempt to cook a recipe from Britain's oldest cookbook, The Form of Curry. Many thanks to everyone who is listening. Well done for listening all the way to the end. If you have any comments or questions, please find me on Twitter at Neil Buttery or email me at neil at britishfoodhistory.com. My blog, www.britishfoodhistory.com, has loads of posts with recipes from Britain's past. Click on the Lent tab for more information on the things we cover in this series. The producer for this series is Bina Katani, and it's a Sonder Radio production. Thank you.